Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, we're back. Sorry. <laughs> uh, this is uh, 14. COVID-14. COVID-14. So today we had a number of speakers, including Jerrica Berg, Charlie Reznikoff. And Jeannie Thompson. Jeannie Thompson. So we'll go through them from the top. And then we did have uh, Joe Helly uh, and uh, Dr. Hick. Exactly. So Jerrica Burge brought the update from the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health from the University of Minnesota Medical School. Um, Another study that they're doing, which she is going to, again, come in every Tuesday to give us uh, just random study that they're doing, which I think is kind of cool. Just kind of keep everybody in the loop of what's going on. But basically, they are now doing a study on the utilization of a phone-based virtual care platform to manage presumptive COVID-19s. And this reminded me a lot of what Maura's doing, yeah. kind of. You know, this they call it the GWL, the Get Well Loop, which basically helps patients monitor their own symptoms, tracks them. They're trying to get a cohort of about 3,000 patients, which is really neat. Yeah, and that's a lot. But they're, you know, really what they're doing is just closely following them, watching their symptoms, charting them. And again, uh, not that different from what Maura Minnesota is doing, but Maura's not doing it as a study there. Uh, that's just the way they've chosen to manage those outpatient. Right. So, and I really thought it cool. was neat that at the end they're going to start tying it into antibody testing and all of that yep. eventually to to really compile all that data. Exactly. And, and then I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you and say we're moving on to the Charlie Resnikoff. He was back. Uh, he was a hesitant participant initially because he's pretty busy. And uh, after the talk, he texted us and said, We were right. Yeah, thanks for asking me to do that. It was super fun. Heather was right again. So so he had a lot of things to talk about. Um, he talked a little bit about the Board of uh, Pharmacy having kind of a fax page on what we're supposed to do with prescribing and what's changed with prescribing on telemed. I think the thing to keep in mind is that pre-COVID and ideally the DEA would like this historical face-to-face physical exam. If you're going to initiate an opioid, you better have that patient in front of you, lay hands on them, and all of that. During COVID, they are allowing the initiation over a audio-visual. It had to be a two-way audio-visual device. Yeah, and it's not the Wild West. You still have to really, you know dot your I's and cross your T's. So uh, just important to understand that uh, there is some of that schedule two or three that you can give actually three one month uh, prescriptions simultaneously, which we used to do. Uh, that's been gone for about a year. Now you can do that again. Um, and again, uh, you can do refills uh, on the schedule three and fives. So mm-hmm. uh, by and, telemed. And e-prescribing. And there was a question about the e-prescribing. And I think the thing to keep in mind with e-prescribing is it doesn't have to be that hard copy paper, which you used to have to do. With e-prescribing, it's a two-level authentication. So yeah. there, it is double-checked and all of that. Don't ask, Kurt. But I liked the quote. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, you just got to be very careful. Uh, he did talk a little bit about the DEA website uh, for COVID on prescribing. It's actually www.deadiversion. Uh, and then 
U.S. DOJ, all that stuff, Gov. But uh, obviously, if you need that, you can uh, you can go to the Minnesota Academy Family Practice website and kind of look up this stuff. Yeah. Uh, watch this. But actually, the their website it looks like Dead Iversion, but it's actually D E A Diversion, U.S. Ah, DOJ dot gov. That's interesting. I wonder if they've like looked at that. I don't think so. But anyway, what they have looked at at Hennepin Healthcare, where Charlie is, you know, one of the addiction doctors there, is their opioid prescribing and how that they have had diminished opioid prescribing, you know, by 20%. You know, really looking at the fact that there have been fewer elective surgeries, obviously, with no one being able to go anywhere, there's been less trauma. Uh, most outpatient visits have been going down, except in the addiction world, it's been basically. Same old in addiction world. Um, and therefore, with having fewer prescriptions, there's been street availability. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the lack of uh, sporting events and injuries associated with that, uh, I don't think 20% is unusual. The people with chronic pain meds are probably still getting them. So right. uh, he talked a little bit about the national drug shortages, and I think that uh, we all know that there's just certain things been a little tough to come by in fentanyl and... Uh, uh, Versed. Yeah, Versed. Uh, those have been a little tough to come by because of the ICU's sucking up all those drugs uh, when people are on ventilators. So very interesting. And then as far as just prescribing, and if you're going to prescribe, it's again, watching the prudence, you know, making sure it's just like always checking the PMP, which he did allude to is a little bit more challenging when you're doing telemed from home and you used to have somebody else logging in for you. Um, being aware of all these, the the shortages and do what you can Ultimately, we want to keep people safe. Yeah. So what about street drugs and addiction and treatment? Well, he had a whole list of stuff that he thought really were being impacted or that were impacting what's going on with uh, really addiction medicine. And certainly we've seen this in our practice, this social isolation, you know, some of the financial financial issues, people losing their jobs and insurance. You know, how do you uh, how do you access addiction treatments during this time? And you know, not everybody has internet to be doing telemed. So I think, you know, there's a bunch of things that uh, can affect this. Well, and then, you know, the communal living and just the unstable living and patient anxiety and triggering situations and yeah. just a lot of things. And then when you look at that and then you look at the actual drug trafficking patterns and, I, you know, in theory, I guess I thought about this, but not as detailed as, you know, if you have drugs that are getting smuggled in, he stated that they're usually by air or by boat. Well, clearly there's been much less traffic in both of those regards. Well, we're not talking like pontoons on Lake Malak. <laughs> well, like big ships. Big ships and, you know, international air travel and heroin places and what they're deciding. And I thought this was kind of a, a sad tale considering that part of the whole heroin trade in the original, let's go back to Mexico, um, the villages there when the sugarcane prices were going down that a lot of the farmers to, to, to take care of their family started to, to change to making poppies and therefore the whole heroin trade got started. He's kind of predicting a little bit of a surge of that again because these third world, third world countries are just going to have to go to what is going to make the money. And so yeah. once things open up around the borders, we're going to have countless yeah. copious illicit drugs. Boy, yeah, you lost me there. But anyway, uh, virtual addiction recovery. So what's going on with although, that? Can I interrupt you, please? Okay. He did talk about the website, although I think he wrote this down wrong. He wrote unodc.org. I wonder if it's undoc.org. I don't know. Basically, the United Nations has a whole website on 
global drug distribution patterns and how they have been impacted by COVID. He said, if you're going to geek out, just go there, just go, you'll get lost down the rabbit hole, be there for like weeks. Okay. Back to virtual actual recovery. So interestingly, all these things have opened up. I think we all are aware of that. If you do addiction, that all the AA meetings, NA meetings, a lot of them are online. A lot of patients really like this. They're just talking with people from all over the world uh, in their groups. So I, I think that's really pretty amazing. I think it's been a little easier um, to kind of access those because you don't need to have a car. You just need to have internet, well, which most of them have. Well, and a couple of positives that my own personal patients have said, especially being in rural areas, is, you know, sometimes going to these AA or NA meetings, they know people at the meetings which can be then triggering to them to be around people who they know maybe still be using or people they used to use with. And so being able to go to meetings with people they don't know from other states and other countries, there's less of that. Plus they're sitting around on their phones, bored of their minds anyway. They're, they said, well, why not just be in a meeting and have yeah. a cool Australian accent? So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about street opioids. Are they more or less available? Well... They are less. And how cool was this little tidbit of information about Wuhan? Wuhan. So it appears that a lot of the fentanyl had been pumping into our country was coming from that area. Not when, just China, but Wuhan. But Wuhan. And uh, <laughs> and uh, so then when they shut that whole thing down, uh, I'm not sure how they're getting out of there. So, um, so that was really interesting how a lot of the street drugs really increased in price. And I think if you look at that 20% drop in prescribed opioids as well, uh, there was probably less of those on the street. You know, we have, uh, you know, interestingly, I don't think we've had a lot of patients that have that have come in and have been new, so we haven't really been hearing some of those stories out here rurally. I mean, we haven't heard the, oh, my gosh, I can't get pills, I can't get fentanyl, I can't get my drugs, so I need treatment. Um, but that is happening in larger areas. The one drug that hasn't been as impacted, like the cocaine and the heroines and the fentanyls, has been meth. Meth is easier to make, easier to transport, I guess. And yeah. most of it's coming from Mexico, so it's a little bit less of a trip around the world. They're just coming across in donkeys or on donkeys. <laughs> in donkeys. Maybe, well, maybe. Not, not in them. Methadone. Let's talk about methadone. So, you know, we all know about the, the methadone treatment programs and these o OTPs, which have been around since 1973 with all of their regulations, which Charlie even said some of them are not necessarily evidence-based, but a lot of their regulations at the methadone clinics are safety-related but, I mean, just to use their clinic as an example is that they have a lot of people, 300 or so a day in a tiny little lobby, all drinking out of this tiny little Dixie cup. They're all using the same bathroom. They're all really close together. And it's just. So basically they've had to slow down, see them less often. See them less often and let them take it home. Yeah. So there's been a lot more methadone out there because of that. So Which that was Charlie's feeling. You know, yeah. I have seen now that we. You've you, seen you, methadone on the street? Well, I personally haven't, but you talked about the patients and we've not gotten new patients in, but I have had some of my patients kind of trying to come back with the Suboxone because they've instead been taking methadone off the street rather than heroin. So I guess I've seen that. But Interesting. So oh, uh, what do we do? Go ahead. Just to remember, and this is on this page, sorry. Methadone is not on the PMP if it's from an OTP. So if they're drinking liquid methadone or... A, liquid methadone is in their hands, it's not on the PMP, so you always got to be aware yeah, of that. No matter where it came from. Well, unless it was prescribed for pain. But that won't be liquid. Nope. So, 
remember that uh, these patients are going to present. They're going to present to ERs. They're going to present to your offices. Please keep referring them to us if you do not take care of those particular patients or to Charlie or to us or to somebody who does addiction med or does Or reach suboxone. out to us if you are in a rural area and you want to know if there's a rural provider of Suboxone or MAT in the area, we can connect you with somebody in that area too. So. Yeah, we'll send you somebody who does a great job. We have friends. So- and again, there still is needle exchanges. That's still going. Um, I think that's important to remember, too. So, And uh, I guess we can move on to alcohol. Alcohol. And we did talk about this way early on when COVID got started. Um, but ultimately, you know, the bars are closed. The restaurants are closed. Charlie talked about a patient who didn't have the ability to even fill out his own unemployment. So he drank until he couldn't afford anymore. And then now we're having seizures or withdrawal and are people hoarding? Are people binging? Or what are they doing to handle their stress? And liquor stores sales are up a whole bunch, 55%. That's a lot. I can't believe that 55% of people were getting their alcohol from bars. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think overall people that I have seen have been drinking more. So alcohol, remember, he talked a little bit about alcohol withdrawal and how important it is to understand that when patients are in withdrawal, that that can be an emergency, especially if you get a patient who's hallucinating or on the edge of DTs. If you do not treat those patients, they don't do so well. So please, please make sure that you're well-versed. Well, and one of the biggest risk factors, again, is a history of having an alcohol withdrawal seizure or having a seizure really increased the risk of having another seizure. So he did give us a couple different um, scales, prediction of alcohol withdrawal severity scale, should you refer to the ED for withdrawal? Can you handle this outpatient? You know, again, it's it's what are you comfortable with? Always refer on if you're getting nervous, but it's definitely something to be aware of as we had talked about, you know, such a high percentage of patients in, e, in the ICUs and in the hospitals do drink a lot and potentially would have some of these symptoms. So Yeah, and really one of the... One of the most commonly used ones, the PAWS, P-A-W-S-S. You can Google that, the Prediction of Alcohol Withdrawal Severity Scale. You didn't say it. I, I didn't say pause, but I said it. I know, you didn't. So different things that you can do to treat mild alcohol withdrawal outpatient. Number one, do not use a benzo. I mean, you can't get versed anyway, but that's you know what you wouldn't do. But don't use benzos. Um, in the mild. In the mild category. Thiamine, multivitamins. Gabapentin, 300 to 600 milligrams, three times daily. Clonidine, 0.1 TID. Uh, frequent follow-up with these patients. Even in the clinic. And then don't forget to talk to them about long-term treatment options. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if they have symptoms that are concerning, uh, those are patients you want to think about even an overnight stay, kind of watch what's going on. So that outpatient treatment, again, get them into AAA, look at some of the other things. Uh, there are some drugs that you can, anyone can prescribe for patients with alcohol use disorder, including naltrexone, what are you smiling? Do you think I'm missing something? No, I just think you mumbled a little bit, but that's okay. Yeah, well, anyway, naltrexone, <laughs> again, most of the studies have shown that that just decreases how much you drink, not so much whether you drink. So uh, gabapentin is off-label, as is a camp. No, a camprosate is not. A camprosate is on-label, but it's a little bit less efficacious. efficacious. But definitely an option Again, cigarette, cigarettes, smoking. This was interesting to me. Yes. How does the COVID positive patient go outside to have a cigarette break and get back into the hospital? Put a, put a patch on that guy and give him some gum. I loved what they did is they actually in the COVID smart set added 
nicotine replacement added that into the smart set so it's something you can't forget to do because forgetting even for a half a day they could start to have nicotine withdrawal which is just going to complicate everything else. Well, even if you find patients and they are on high flow oxygen or end up intubated, I think they'll be much more complicated. Remember, if they have an alcohol use disorder or a tobacco use disorder, that's going to make them look different. So differently. Differently. Make sure that you always take that into uh, into uh, account. So, but the newest data on smoking, obviously, smoking is a risk factor for COVID. However, it doesn't have to be current risk factor. Current use. It could be ever a tobacco user is an increased risk of COVID. Current tobacco use is not a proven risk factor. Mm. Anyway. Um, so if I just start smoking today, it's not that big a thing. But if I've been smoking for like 40 years, my lungs I may not be as good as I would like. Or your blood vessels and all the things that can cause clotting issues. So basically, time to quit smoking. Yeah. It's yeah. actually going to the store to get that cigarette is probably a risk. That's true. And sharing them and, you know, all those kinds of things. So it's a good time to quit. So is smoking in a tight space with people, is that considering an aerosolizing procedure if you're, like, exhaling that cigarette smoke very hard? I don't think so. I Unless you're singing at the same time. Yeah, so. But you can see it. I don't think anyway, it is. there's a new study. Review tobacco treatment options, said Charlie. Yeah, there's a couple things. Nicotine replacement, obviously, Chantex, the trade name, and bupropion. Varanicline. That's Ver- how Charlie called Varanicline. it. Varanicline. And then bupropion. But really, in the hospital setting, you're going to do lots of NRT, a lot of nicotine replacement, throw a bunch of patches on them. They're probably not chewing gum if they're innovated. That's difficult. So, in summary, remember, most of addiction medicine has really continued. And, and I would have to say uh, the difference between rural and the Twin Cities, I think, right now is we're not getting a lot of new people, uh, and they seem to be. Um, patients may be very vulnerable at this time, and uh, we do have the tools to treat to prevent other harm from all of these different substances. So never forget to screen people as they come into the hospital. Exactly. And now we're looking for Jeannie Thompson. And it doesn't look like Dr. Bell can find hers. But Jeannie Thompson, yes. No, I just was wanting to give her her appropriate like I, I have it title. Right here. Director of Youth Programming and Community Outreach, Women's Shelter and Support Center, Rochester, Minnesota, Jeannie Thompson. Boom. Yeah, so she just started by talking about domestic violence in general, pattern of abusive behavior to gain and maintain power and control in a relationship, one in three women, one in four men, some type of violence in their lifetime. And then she did go on to say that it obviously can impact anybody Race, class, education, gender, religion, blah, blah, blah. And it does not all have to be what we consider like violence, physical violence. It can be lots of other things, anything that you can have power and control over. Yeah, intimidation, isolation, denying and blaming, all kinds of things. Economic abuse, you know, not giving anybody money, threats. So, So it's a cycle of violence. It's a cycle. So she went into this whole... Crisis phase, which is what we all think of as, you know, that drama, what you see on TV, crisis phase. The and then blow up. The blow up. Right after that, this calm, lovey-dovey, you know, the honeymoon phase, I think she called it. And then this tension phase, which you can kind of walk on eggshells. The build up. The build up. Um, I, yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I was, was going to say jinx because you just said the same thing as me. But, yeah, so that whole build up where 
that tension is there. And if things aren't just perfect, boom. Back to crisis phase. Back to crisis. So really there's been, uh, they believe a lot of this going on is everybody's been stuck in their homes. And uh, I, I thought it was interesting that she said that seven to, that most people leave seven to 12 times before they finally leave for good. So that's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. So different differences before COVID is that there was a lot more access with the crisis lines. They had more opportunities for leaving because they could go places. There were more support systems and places open. The violent partners and the victims could all leave at some point potentially to go to work, to go to school. Um, children would be out of there. Um, she did mention that adolescents have actually become more violent during all this too. And of course, they weren't at school either. But then during COVID, obviously, they're not going anywhere. It's harder to reach out, um, and they have noticed a huge decrease in calls to their crisis line. Yeah, so they're not sheltering as many victims, um, and they're trying to kind of keep victims more separated, obviously, because of the uh, they don't want them to be not social distanced. So that's been a big issue. So, But what I found interesting is that there's actually been more orders of protection and harassment and restraining orders. And more family violence during all this time with all these protection orders, yet fewer calls in crisis. Yeah, so Sad. that is. Anyway, so the biggest thing is, of course, begin the conversation. Don't ask if you're a victim of violence. No one's ever going to answer yes to that question. It's really making sure you have that person you're concerned about or any person you know alone where you can kind of gently pry um, definitely noticing that the six weeks before a person leaves and the six weeks after they leave are the most um, scary of the relationship. Um, and that, you know, the ways that they've kind of worked around this in, in their areas, they've actually been able to use some off-site housing, hotels, separate housing. Uh, staff is still able to communicate with people, but they do anticipate a huge influx after COVID is over. Yeah, so... That's uh, that's interesting. I probably lost you. I think you tried to finish that. So is that your end? That's my end. Do you have anything to add? Not really. I think we'll switch to Joe Helley, uh, previously of CentriCare, although he's still from CentriCare, but working with the emergency uh, uh, task force down in the Twin Cities. So Joe gave a little talk talking about how we still have ICU beds, which is good. Uh, the Metro is starting to ramp up case-wise. And they're really looking at... Uh, what they're going to have to do to kind of distribute the COVID patients amongst other hospitals because certain ones are getting a bit overwhelmed in comparison. So I think that's something that they're looking at right now. Well, they're having, they're going to be very soon having more of that coordination center. So if you're having patients and you don't have the access for them in your facility, a place to call to kind of get an access point, especially if it's a vent patient or a really significantly ill patient. And then also having these alternate care sites Throughout, especially in the metro, if they can't go back to a nursing home or what have you. Joe talked a little bit about their cold storage unit, uh, which is a little scary that they're going to have to probably have someplace to put bodies at some point. Uh, and, of course, coming up, we have our talks on some of these issues with uh, the bodies and uh, post-mortem care and considerations. Yeah, so that's coming up. Um but just understand they will have a place to put the bodies. Uh, he talked about the testing. Jesus. <laughs> you know, I say, where'd they put the bodies? Yeah, in a state storage unit. Uh, 5,000 tests were done just yesterday in, uh, in, in Minnesota. And again, 665 new cases. So 57 new ICU patients. And 
if we could do whatever we wanted to do, Heather, how many tests would we be doing? 13,000 a day yeah. if we had the supply. Yeah. <laughs> we could. It's our capacity. We're not even halfway there yet. But then we switched it over to Dr. John Hick, um, who has actually stated that they'd have six different 10-person National Guard teams spread throughout long-term care and congregate living places throughout our state right now to help uh, get this testing ramped up and to help uh, kind of coordinate all these efforts in all of these long-term care and congregate living areas around our state who've been affected. Yeah. Had a big problem with the N95 masks. They got a whole ton of them. I think he's at 15,000. I could be wrong. There's a lot. A lot that can't be fit tested. Yeah, and they they failed the fit testing at uh, Mayo. I think they also did the testing at the UN Mayo. And uh, it's kind of like having a submarine with a with a hole in it. Really not much use. Something with the noses. Maybe they need different people. Maybe we need <laughs> Maybe they were just putting them on really skinny people hmm. and they didn't fit people with small heads, but the reality is they've got the all they've got all these masks. But they do not feel they're safe, so we're still in a bit of a shortage. Right. Talked a little bit about getting more events, but then spent some more time talking about long-term care staffing issues. Again, back to this whole everybody's positive. Staff is now getting positive. Um, they've started to set up different um, grids and different po- point-of-care kind of things to get nurses where they need to be, both from the VA, and then there's some software to help fill these long-term care shifts to to get nurses to where they're needed and trying to keep these patients in their area rather than trying to keep shipping them all over the place if they're positive, trying to kind of block off an area of the, the long-term care facility. Yeah, I think the one thing to, uh, to remember uh, when we look at all of this is that I think we have a lot of healthcare providers or, and other people walking around thinking they can't get sick. Do you, did you look at the percentage of healthcare workers of the total cases? Well, it's like 2,000. It's like, yeah, it's more than 10% of the positive cases have been healthcare workers. So if you don't think you need a, a mask, think again. Dun, dun, dun. So speaking of thinking, we we did ask Dr. Hick what he thought about the fact that Wisconsin has opened up uh, slightly more than Minnesota. I don't know, funniest thing. He said that he's always concerned about Wisconsin, both with the Packers and now the border. I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Um, but then had mentioned how, like, when Georgia opened up, they had 65,000 people going into their metro area. Can you imagine? No, but how many people are driving to Hudson to have a beer in a bar from the Minneapolis area? So, yeah, this is going to change things, and I think it's just time will tell. He kind of ended with this whole N95 discussion with any critical care, anybody who's more significantly ill, anybody who's a confirmed COVID case, you should be having the N95 on. Yeah. Ideally, anybody who's even suspected, you should also have the N95 on, especially if they're really sick. And I think there might be a few of us that are a little hopeful that this warm weather was going to chase COVID-19 away. Uh, but he reminded think us again. Yeah, that Hong Kong has Guam. very... And Guam, was it Guam? She said Hong Kong. But oh, yeah, Hong Kong, sorry. Guam, one of those places. Uh, actually had very similar weather to what we're having now, and it spread like wildfire. So let's not pretend that uh, the weather's going to change this dramatically. We need to still be vigilant. 
and wear our masks. So welcome to summer. So what's coming up this next week, Dr. Bell? Well, tomorrow in Addiction World on the Addiction Echo, we are having you talking about the heritability and genetics of alcohol use disorder. And then Thursday, we have an amazing group of people, uh, Dr. Stover, Dr. Strobel, both talking about um, postmortem care, autopsies, death certificates, and then some epidemiologists talking about like, yeah, all the things you should know about this. And then next Tuesday, that'll be followed up by the current medical examiner at Hennepin County, who's got some really cool cases and PowerPoint stuff that's that he, super that he, top secret. Yeah, I won't share with us yet. Usually we get it ahead of time. The next med update will also be next Tuesday from yeah. the Chris Hagen. And then we may have a real special one coming up that we can't talk about yet. Exactly. So that's top secret stay too. But tuned. Or, or stay tuned. We do have some... High-level people potentially coming on to kind of discuss some of the different things that might change, Dr. Bell. So, yeah. All right. Anyway. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you back on Thursday. So, and then at the end of the week, this weekend, we will, again, attempt to summarize all of the most recent journal articles for y'all so you don't have to read them all. We will. <laughs> anyway, battle legs, are you warming up? All right. Now a song from- stop talking. Battle Eggs on Facebook. Thanks again. As I came by Tara Market, Tara Market for to fee, I met up with the farmer's child, the barnyard's a delicacy. Lintonati to Renetti, Lintonati to Renee, Linton Lauren, 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 the barnyard's a delicacy. He promised me the finest pair that I ever set my eyes upon. When I got to the barnyard, there was nothing there but skin and bone. Lintonati to Renetti, Lintonati to Renee. Not get drunk, I can fight and not be slain. I can sleep with another man's wife and still be welcome to my Lynch and